la cour, the court. Merci, bonjour à tous. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. In the matter of Her Majesty the Queen versus Melanie St. Marie et al. For the appellant, Her Majesty the Queen, Magalie Simon, Emily Robert, and Geneviève Gravel. For the intervener, Attorney General of Ontario, Mr. Michael Fawcett. For the respondents, Melanie St. Marie, Dax St. Marie, and Richard Felks. Marie-Pierre Boulet and Marie-Ève Landry. For the respondent, Michel St. Marie, Sheriff Foda, and Frank Adario. For the intervener, Criminal Lawyers Association of Ontario, Aaron Dan and Daniel Goldblum. For the intervener, Quebec Association of Defense Lawyers, Louis Bellot and Antoine Grondin-Couture. Ms. Simon. Chief Justice, Justices, good morning. As you know, the role of the public prosecutor is to serve the interests of justice, and that's the spirit in which I appear before you today. In our factum, we mentioned that society has evolved and has a good understanding of the cultural change that was required since Jordan. But here we submit that the Court of Appeal for Quebec is not taking the correct approach and it's not sensitive to the particularities of the case at bar. That's what I intend to explain further. In the case at bar, it's a serious conviction that was appealed and if the calcul calculation of the delays was done properly, in our opinion, 42 months of delay would be attributable to defense and the unavailability of defense counsel. Society cannot accept a stay of proceedings in this case, in particular, where the collective resources of government were mobilized to conduct a large-scale investigation. As a result, we are asking that the delays be ruled reasonable given the extraordinary rem remedies involved, and this matter should be referred back for a new hearing. Council, that was a question I wanted to ask. In your factum, you ask that the stay of proceedings be quashed and that a new hearing be ordered at the Court of Appeal. Are you talking about a new hearing on the first question? Because in your factum, you say the Court of Appeal didn't do its job, or do you want a new hearing on the nine other grounds of appeal? I have to admit, Justice, that my the relief sought in the factum was not very clear. What we're asking for is a ruling on the delays. We want them declared reasonable so that the matter can be referred back to the Court of Appeal and a ruling can be had on the other nine grounds. So that's what we are asking for, is a ruling on the nine other grounds. Uh, in the alternative, we'd like everything referred back to the Court of Appeal for a full redetermination. Okay, well, thank you for that clarification. So what you're asking us to do today, if I understand you correctly, is not to do 
or the redo the exercise that the or to do the exercise that the Court of Appeal failed to do. That's right. But if this court were of the opinion that it was more appropriate to return everything back to the Court of Appeal, that would be an option as well, given the grounds that we're raising. You mentioned earlier, and perhaps you might want to answer this question later, but you said that if we were of the view that the extraordinary remedies and the unavailability of defense, you were saying that that adds up to a 42-month delay. But if the delay is over, 30, if the net delay is over 30 months, I hope you're going to address that because you're still over the presumptive ceiling in that case. Yes, indeed. What we said at the Court of Appeal was that we did the calculation under Jordan to see what, how much the ceiling was surpassed by, how much over the ceiling we were. And in, with our calculation, we come to a 35-month net delay. Obviously, that's over the ceiling in Jordan. But given that the extraordinary remedies had been dealt with entirely before the Jordan decision came down, we're asking for the transitional exceptional circumstance to apply in this case because this is a very complex case and uh, I, we believe that it meets the standard for a fairly complex case. Besides decisions on delay, there are two other decisions we'd like to call to your attention. One of those is Sega. And we submit that there are three issues. The role of a court of appeal in giving a determination of a valid ground of appeal that is raised. Secondly, the approach, approach that should be taken to delays under Jordan, especially when there are extraordinary remedies involved. And finally, what is the appropriate remedy in such a case? The Court of Appeal pushed aside some of the trial judge's decisions on the gravity of the decision and we are of the view that the interests of society uh, were significant. They were significant to the trial judge, and the Court of Appeal didn't take pay sufficient heed to the interests of society. Ms. Simon, just so, to make sure I understand your point, at paragraph 18 of the Court of Appeal decision, you acknowledge that the trial judge erred in assessing the prejudice suffered by the respondents uh, by taking in, it into, into account at the remedy stage. So it's your submission, is it not, that the Court of Appeal could have found, in taking a holistic view of the trial decision, the Court of Appeal's finding on prejudice was such that there was, in fact, no violation of 11b under Morin. Is that your point? Yes, Mr. Justice Kazerer. That finding was not made at the right place under the Morin framework. And if it had been put in the right place, in combination with our question of law on extraordinary remedies, 
and the application of the transitional exceptional circumstance, there would not have been a constitutional violation under Morin. So that comes under the first stage of finding whether there was a violation under Morin. And if there were no violation under Morin, if, you, if, if the trial judge had uh, assessed things correctly, then the transitional measure could apply, and it's our submission, and that answers Justice Cote's question from earlier as well. It's our submission that the transitional measure is applicable given the gravity of the offense and the prejudice because under Cody, it was found that the transitional measure was relevant, and I think it's particularly important in this case, given the, the size of the investigation, the scale of the investigation, and the seriousness of the offenses involved. So in brief, this is about a major investigation into organized crime, and it revealed large-scale money laundering and the Court of Appeal did not do an adequate legal analysis of the situation. We're still in shock after that decision because there was never any question of shortcomings uh, in the on the record uh, and it was all based on an agreed statement of facts and the defense did not object to anything. The defense argued that under Jordan, the prejudice was no longer an ele uh, there was no longer any need to attach any weight to prejudice. But we submit that within the transitional exceptional circumstance, prejudice is still relevant, as relevant as the gravity of the offense. That said, what did cause the delays. How do we characterize those delays under the transitional exceptional circumstance? Well, there was a conflict of interest among defense counsel and that was an important element in this case. Ms. Simon, on that point, I understand that there was a challenge to the jurisdiction of the presiding judge at the preliminary inquiry as to whether or not he could hear the disqualification motions, but it took you almost 10 months after indicating that you would raise disqualification, it took you almost 10 months to move that motion. Who's responsible for that delay? Yes, thank you, Justice Cote. In our factum at the Court of Appeal, we never asked for that delay to be included in the deduction of delays. So we really started from when the extraordinary remedies were first introduced. Furthermore, of the eight-month delay, because in our view, in light of the admissions, there were negotiations with the defense and they said they were studying the issue and that they were going to get back to us with a position on it. So given the good relations among counsel for both sides, and as I said it was a complex case, when we appeared for the hearing having indic given that indication to the parties, and it's a complex case with voluminous evidence, 
very voluminous evidence. So in order for the parties and for counsel to fully appreciate the time required to take a position on such a significant issue, in the interest of the administration of justice, we allowed that amount of time, which in our view was necessary, according to what Mor Morin contemplated at the time. And within that delay, you have to understand that there was also a waiver of a month and a half by the defense. And when the time came to have this matter of disqualification heard, there, was, there were some challenges. And in our view, those challenges threw us off our prosecution plan because we did raise a significant issue of disqualification and we wanted that dealt with as soon as possible. And the judge we were contemplating was the, the judge presiding uh, at the preliminary inquiry. And it was only at the time when that, was, uh, when that came up, that's when the defense's responsibility kicked in, in our view, and they weren't ready at that point. And then there was also the extraordinary remedies. And all of that, in our view, shifted the responsibility for the delays on to the defense. Ms. Simon, if you don't mind, uh, speaking of delays, your motion was moved in 2019 and the decision came in September 2020. Is there any reason? Were there any motions made before the Court of Appeal? Was, was there any incident that would explain those quite significant exceptional delays at the Court of Appeal for 18, over 18 paragraphs. To answer your question, no, there was no indication from the Court of Appeal that there was any problem in this matter. We were awaiting the decision. We had been waiting for a long time. It was an important decision to the Crown given the issues at stake and we were watching closely. We were, we were waiting, eagerly awaiting the Court of Appeal's decision because we had an interest in having a timely decision and we felt that given the scale of this case, it was important to us. And I'm still surprised, personally, I'm still a little bit in shock because I argued this case before the Court of Appeal. I'm still surprised by the decision because for us and for myself, paragraph 14 of the Court of Appeal decisions is still very hard for me to understand. I can't get my mind around what was the stumbling block for the Court of Appeal given the issues at bar. We're talking about extraordinary remedies. That's a significant issue that just is on the face of it uh, an obvious issue. And our process or our calculation of the delays was very reasonable in my opinion. We could have asked for much more under the transitional exceptional circumstance because the defense never really finalized what their position was going to be and that was a huge obstacle to moving forward in this case. But in spite of all that, we played fair and uh, we were cooperative and in our view the trial judge could have ruled given the gravity of the offense and the prejudice. Uh, go, go ahead. Thank you Justice Kasserer. When you say 
that you're still floored by paragraph 14 or still puzzled by it, that's because the Court of Appeal said they were unable to revisit the trial, dis trial judge's decision. Is that what you didn't understand? Well, it's the paragraph as a whole because we were told, well, was it the right procedure to be able to raise our question? Because on one hand, yes, but on the other hand, uh, it seems to be somewhat ambiguous. So it was on that point that uh, we had trouble understanding because we would argue that uh, it was the right legal procedure to apply. And uh, there's also the matter of uh, the admissions because you, you will see uh, in our factum and in our condensed book that uh, we uh, assessed that we had uh, done well in comprehending uh, the whole issue uh, in accordance with Jordan. And uh, this was something that was not done at the uh, trial level. And uh, so we thought, uh, uh, so, and I was not the, the uh, counsel uh, at the trial level. And uh, so uh, I was following the admissions and I was able to do the work. So uh, that is why I don't understand. Uh, apologies. Uh, just a quick comment. So all the evidence was in the file before the Court of Appeal and the Court of Appeal had no reason not to do its work, correct? Answer, well, yes, the Court of Appeal didn't have everything it need in, needed in terms of uh, the delays. For example, what uh, was applicable to prejudice, for example, the testimony of uh, the accused. But since uh, the defense was not challenging the factual findings of uh, prejudice, then we felt that we didn't need that. De the defense simply thought that it was uh, an element under Jordan, but it wasn't challenging the findings of the judge with regard to prejudice. So uh, our perception at the time, and it still is, is that the findings regarding prejudice, prejudice are still valid. Please go ahead, uh, Justice Kessler. You've been waiting. Uh, thank you. Uh, you are very kind. Now, could you take that a little bit further with regard to paragraph 14, with regard to the admissions and their legal validity? You see that the Court of Appeal quotes uh, Pateras, and you... Uh, Maître Simon, you are often in the Court of Appeal, and uh, for someone who uh, there was an incomplete file, now you are challenging uh, factual findings, and the Court of Appeal has a tradition under uh, the standard of review to not go further in the file. And so uh, Pateras and Bellevaux are both quoted where this, uh, this same principle was put forward. Uh, there's also an Ontario ruling and Rice. Now, we agree that the admissions uh, that you filed in the file, or that you filed rather for the case The court, la cour, 
the court. Thank you. We're back. Thank you for your patience. I'm just going to say that this is the first time in two years of the pandemic that uh, we've had this incident happen at the court. So thank you to our committed team of professionals. We have been able to overcome the problem. So we're going to take over, uh, resume uh, with uh, where we left off with uh, Justice Kessler. Thank you, Chief Justice. Uh, my uh, colleagues think that it was probably my very complicated question that uh, caused uh, the platform to crash. And so I hope that I will be uh, less complex than last time. We were uh, talking uh, about paragraph 14 as uh, brought up by uh, my colleague Justice Cote. And uh, the uh, principle uh, raised in Rice, Bidivo, and uh, Pateras, among others. And my question is this. What is the legal validity of this uh, joint uh, declaration of admissions? How must we understand your position as it relates to what the Court of Appeal should have uh, done in its analysis. Thank you, Justice uh, Kazur. My response will be somewhat lengthy because my response will be somewhat lengthy because I think it's an important point. What we see in the admissions is that uh, they prove underlying factors that are important in the determination of the delays. Now how the delays are considered, well, that's up to the judges, and if there's an error in law, then it's up to the Court of Appeal or the Supreme Court to uh, correct uh, uh, as to how the underlying facts are considered in the admissions. As well, in our opinion, uh, the difference with uh, Beliveau is important because the admissions were made at the trial stage and it is on that basis that the trial judge established the ruling and it is based on those facts that the crown supported the claims as to to redefine the facts in the at the court of appeal level uh, did not appear appropriate to us and that for us is the difference with Bellabo also at to paragraph 108 and following of Beliveau, it is established that the uh, tables, that uh, the grids that were used even before Jordan, uh, well, that was not useful. And so uh, the distinction for us is that the admissions represent the hearings that uh, bring up important facts that were established over a long period of time. And that means that we don't have to look to the transcriptions and records at uh, the trial stage. And that is why this should be encouraged by this court because we would like to shorten the delays. And I think that that uh, might be a good way of doing so. With regard to Rice and uh, paragraph 70, what we understood that is required from the parties is that more effective means 
need to be used to establish the fate, the, the facts that underlie the claims. And I said that I, I was going to be lengthy to come back to Beliveau again. If we look at Beliveau as a whole, the court was able to establish that uh, despite the flaw in the file, it was able to correctly apply the transitional exceptional circumstance in that file. And important findings of fact are also in the reasoning of uh, Judge Gagno, that is, that this, this is part of uh, the reasoning for Betty Bo and the gravity of the offense as well and the complexity of the case. So those elements in the Bellabo case allowed the court to correctly apply the transitional exceptional circumstance and that's what we're calling for here. The counsel, I understand uh, your answer, but my question is with regard to prejudice. Unless I'm mistaken, uh, prejudice is not dealt with as such, and both before the Court of Appeal and before us, uh, uh, when we're talking about Morin, you are basing yourself on what uh, Judge Garneau said at page uh, 60 of volume 1 of the appellant's file. Yes, indeed. Madam Justice Cote, we uh, defer to the findings, uh, to the ruling of uh, Judge Garneau on, this, uh, on the gravity of the offense and the prejudice. The factual findings uh, were not challenged by the respondents uh, at the Court of Appeal. And given that the entire qu question of law for them had to do with prejudice, it means that it's no longer an ele element of assessment but it was up to them with regard to the conclusions that they wanted to challenge. It was up to them to uh, submit that. Another question. In Morin, the directives were at between 14 and 18 months in a case like that. And so here, if, if I speak for myself, uh, the whole uh, responsibility for uh, the extraordinary remedies uh, and so forth, we're still at uh, 35 months. So uh, between 14 and 18 months and 35 months, well, that's uh, considerable. So you're asking us to look at the findings of Judge uh, Garner with regard to prejudice, with regard to the gravity of the offense, and that would uh, justify the fact that uh, it's gone well beyond the Moran Directive? Yes, because if you combine that with the, the inherent delays in uh, Morin, a, a number of them were accepted because the case was complex. And I would uh, say that this is a particularly complex case as well. But for the purposes of our argument at the, the appeal level, we want to apply the transitional exceptional circumstance. So given that this is a complex case, we argue that the application of the uh, transitional exceptional, exceptional circumstance could apply because there were delays that were inherent to the case and, its, and the way it was structured.
So we're talking about a joint admission and that created uh, delays before it came to trial. The other thing that I wanted to raise under Morin is that at the constitutional level, it, it, it was not a flaw because under Morin, we talk about uh, these guidelines about between 12 and 18 months and for the for the trial and uh, about the, a little bit less for the preliminary hearing hearing and the problem as i wanted to say was the difficulty of respecting the guidelines because the problem of uh, the representativity of the defense lawyers. Last question, therefore the findings of Judge Galno on prejudice, in your opinion, mean that the Crown uh, is right despite the lack of uh, the diligence on the part of the Crown, and he said that this lack of diligence was the cause of uh, some of the delays, right? Answer. For us, the uh, major question was the conflict of interest in that case, and what we're arguing, and the extraordinary remedies were the, the issues to be analyzed in that file. And we submit that Judge Garneau just simply ignored that part of the reasoning because if he had done so, he would have understood that the fact that there was no direct indictment did not uh, fix that particular issue. And what we're asking for is that there should be a responsibility assumed by the defense so that those questions can be fixed at the very beginning of the procedures because the crown cannot move forward in a case without uh, qualified counsel and that is what emerged in the preliminary inquiry all the steps were uh, laid out as to when qualified counsel is needed. And so we feel that the will on the part of the Crown uh, was not considered. Now, with regard to the direct indictment uh, with Judge David, we are we still had difficulties so imagine if that issue had not been uh, solved at first we would have uh, come to the superior court with an indictment and the attendant difficulties and that is an important decision in the administration of justice and even that question although we had uh, solved it was uh, a very was a stumbling block maitre simon Yes, there are many questions. I apologize, but uh, perhaps you're going to, and you're, perhaps you're going to answer this later. But given the presence of the interveners and their interest in this question, I would have liked to hear you on the issues at bar, and perhaps correct me if I'm wrong. In the current appeal, given the absence of uh, a violation of 11b 
so uh, according to your findings, the question of the available remedies on which the Court of Appeal stumbled is not really at issue here. Is that correct? Is that your position? That is my position, Justice Kasra, for one fundamental reason. We are in a transitional period and it was often felt that the only available remedy was a stay of proceedings. So in order not to prejudice the respondent's interest in this case, there uh, a, a stay is warranted and we don't want to reopen that question. We saw the decision in which, uh, which the intervener raised. So we have to think of uh, future cases, but this is not an issue in the case at bar. Merci. Donc, je Thank you. So I'll come back to my outline of argument. There are some things that I've already answered, but I still wanted to mention that there is a level of complexity in this case. In our view, this was a hard case to handle, and I would refer you to paragraph 77 of Jordan in that connection. So this case, if you look at the context and what's attributable to the Crown, when you're dealing with a difficult case like this, a big case, we believe that we followed the teachings of Eau Claire the charges were very targeted. Obviously, it was a large-scale investigation, but we decided to focus in on the St. Marie group and uh, just to target them and not to go beyond them. And we wanted the case to be handled in a way that kept them together and we think that the Justice Chevalier's decision at the preliminary inquiry was important because even back then, everyone could understand what everyone's role was and what the evidence was. Another important thing to mention in our view was the fundamental principle of a conflict of interest, which is ab above all for the defense to assess. We shouldn't have to delve into, we shouldn't have to get into a blame game here, but we do have to attribute responsibility where it properly lies. And in spite of that, we do agree that we do have a responsibility for delay where there is delay. And in our view, we raise the issue promptly. And the best way of resolving that 
issue promptly was to have the presiding judge at the preliminary inquiry deal with the issue and that served the interest of justice to have the, that issue dealt with at the preliminary inquiry and in order to understand the Crown's submission properly we're not blaming the defense for challenging the motion on the contrary we wanted to have that issue aired and what we do criticize the defense for and it's unnecessary really to point fingers or to blame anyone but for for these extraordinary remedies but it's our view that the responsibility falls with the defense because of how they chose to respond to the conflict of interest issue. They did so by challenging the court's jurisdiction and they resorted to extraordinary remedies and you'll see in the list of admissions that on the specific issue of conflict of interest the defense did nothing to help resolve that issue and it's also clear they felt that our motion was premature and so it's in that context that we feel that there was a problem and that the filing of the extraordinary remedies should be um, attributed to the defense. I have a question for you. Just to be clear, all the other grounds of appeal that were not ruled on, the court, did the Court of Appeal hear any arguments on those other grounds or just on the 11B ground? The oral arguments were on all the grounds of appeal. We argued all 10 grounds but the Court of Appeal said that they didn't need to hear us on every single ground at the outset. The Court of Appeal felt that there were two issues that the defense had raised that were important. One was 11B and the other was everything to do with the wiretap evidence. And but the oral arguments were on all of the grounds. Yes, that's right. Okay, thank you. Ms. Simon at the Court of Appeal on the issue of 11B. There were discussions. They said the record was incomplete. They said, could you complete the record? Because I remember in years past when the Court of Appeal uh, didn't hesitate to ask for more information on the record. No, that's why we were so surprised. There was no suggestion from the Court of Appeal that there was anything lacking from the record. And also, the Defense, defense Council at Court of Appeal agreed with our calculation of five months. So that was never questioned. 
there was no, the Court of Appeal didn't question our calculations. And in our view, we were reasonable in our, our way of seeing things and our way of coming up with our calculation. And we went by Belleville, Belleville rather, in deducting the extraordinary remedies. That was the part we were asking to have deducted. And then we were also act, asking for a one month deduction deduction and that that was that was subject to a explicit waiver before the re-election and then there was one year when Mr. LaBelle was unavailable for the trial so from January from the fall from January to the fall of 2015 defense counsel wasn't available and that's why trial was set down for January 2016 and so that was never questioned So, Ms. Simon, just to be clear, uh, this wasn't exactly one of the Court of Appeals' uh, heaviest decisions in terms of access. Well, especially because this was a major case, this was a, a large-scale investigation, and you have to understand that this is post-Jordan. This, this, the charges were laid in 2009, initially but this was even before Eau Claire so even before Eau Claire we were well aware that in very complex cases and we're talking here about people involved in organized crime Mr. Louis Wumimet who has a number of uh, cases but we wanted to get things right and so we were very targeted in our approach and we were very aware of the negative consequences of delays. So the point is not to blame the defense, but it's to hold the defense accountable for the delays they caused. Now we understand Vassell, uh, the decision of this court, when there's multiple accused, co-accused, uh, the Crown has to be proactive and, and diligent too. So that's precisely what we were trying to do. And that's what we were trying to do with the direct indictment and with the conflict, trying to resolve the conflict of interest issues promptly. We wanted to handle this file and to bring it through to trial expeditiously. In Vassell, there was the whole issue of separating the charges or offering to separate some of the co-accused who to avoid them being dragged along by the others but in this case all the accused were directly involved in the conflict of interest the only one who wasn't was Mr. Richard Falks and perhaps we were a bit tardy in offering to him that his case could be separated and but he wasn't even ready to take us up on that he was just content to sit back and watch he was part of the group and he didn't want to be separated at least it's our understanding he didn't want to be dealt with separately from the Saint Marie group he worked in that industry and 
I don't think it was his intention to separate from the rest of the group. And at the Court of Appeal, and you can see in our materials that uh, he did not argue, make any arguments on his own behalf. He simply went along with what the other uh, counsel was arguing for the other co-accused. Uh, in paragraph 4 of the Vassell decision, similar to that, we're asking the court to appropriately characterize the extraordinary remedies. So I will now move on to the second issue in my outline of argument. What approach should be taken to extraordinary remedies under Morin and Jordan? First of all, we have to point out that this case involves extraordinary remedies invoked by the defense. And contrary to Justice Garneau, it's our submission that there were four extraordinary remedies in this case, and that shows the scope of those remedies. And in dealing with those remedies, we should come back to the teachings in Awashish, And Awashish should be applied properly to the facts of this case. So our position, the approach we recommend, is first of all, under Morin, to repeat paragraph 201 of Belleville. That is to say that extraordinary remedies under Morin are attributable to the defense because they are moved by the defense. Under Jordan, we would ask that you apply paragraphs 82 and 83 to the defense's extraordinary remedies when they are moved in bad faith or they're futile or executed in a dilatory manner. And that's the, what was held in Sega. So there are two options. Whichever option this court chooses to take, the Crown certainly did not act in bad faith, bad faith frivolously or in a dilatory manner. And that's why these extraordinary memories should not, uh, remedies should not be attributed to the Crown. And they're not part of the normal delays of a trial. And the various points of view you'll find in the case law, some demonstrate a misunderstanding of the nature of these extraordinary remedies. These are remedies that cannot be anticipated and therefore should not be included in the presumptive ceilings under Jordan, the 30-month ceiling. Ms. Simon. So in that respect, unless I'm mistaken, the Court of Appeal of Quebec did not make any determination on that. That's correct. So it's as if there was nothing. There was no, that was not even argued. 
Well, we asked the Court of Appeal to rule on the extraordinary remedies with, uh, with under paragraph 201 of Belleville, but the Court of Appeal at the time, they did not have the benefit of the Tsega decision and the Court of Appeal said that it would deal with the issue uh, of, of extraordinary remedies uh, and where they fit in under Jordan. They said they would deal with that at another time with, in another case. But I think this is a ripe opportunity to do just that. I think uh, there's a good uh, assessment of the delays and I think Sega did a survey of the case law in Canada and I think it is time for this court to rule on that. The Ontario Court of Appeal has concluded that those delays should not automatically be included in the 18th or 30 month presumptive ceilings and if there's no reason not to, that should be followed. Et cinq, nous avons la décision du juge Brantun euh, qui est le recours extraordinaire sur la demande de récusation du juge euh, Garneau en l'espèce. Je trouve que c'est tout. We have the decision of Justice Brantun at tab five, and it's a good illustration of the of how Tega is a, a good decision. Uh, an extraordinary remedy pops up right in the middle of a trial. Often it's a, a request, a motion to have the judge recuse themselves and things move into a different jurisdictional area and there are different issues, the availability of other judges, the availability of uh, court dates, uh, and the issue of whether transcripts are necessary to settle the issue. And in that case, Justice Brunton said, uh, I, I, I was available, so this could be solved promptly. And so the judge was able to deal with the extraordinary remedy quite promptly without destabilizing the whole trial. And that's why we feel that if there's nothing abusive, nothing accusatory or blameworthy in counsel's conduct, there should be a deduction. Uh, a last point before wrapping up that I would like to address with you. In the proposal of Michel Saint-Marie, since it is a uh, joint charge in the file, we argue that the delays are attributable to the th uh, three members of the Saint-Marie group because the conflict of interest was uh, had to do with wanting to be represented by the office of Maître Labelle and uh, from the outset of the procedures. It, it, uh, it was under Ms. Saint-Marie uh, that the payments were made, so I don't see why the 
analysis would be uh, hived off uh, from uh, Mr. St. Maggie's case because uh, throughout the proceedings he was along with uh, Dax and uh, Melanie St. Marie in uh, the case and even before the Superior Court he said uh, that he was following along and that he deferred to them so uh, so we don't think that this should be separate so so yes it's a, a co-accusation here but it uh, we claim that they uh, sought joint representation and is, they were working as a unit in their representation and uh, the end goal uh, of uh, the um, accusation uh, targeted them all. So we think that uh, the extraordinary remedy should be uh, taken away for all of them. and. Uh, Mr. Felks also followed along with the St. Maggie group, and that is why we think that the transitional exceptional circumstance should apply in that case as well. Is that the end of your arguments, uh, Ms. Simon? Because you have eight minutes. Ah, eight minutes. Thank you very much. Yes, so our position is that uh, the Tsega decision. Uh, is in compliance with uh, the administration of justice and uh, although uh, the Jordan case is one thing we must uh, avoid any injustices against the parties because they did comply with the law at the time and uh, the defense has no obligation to help now we assume our role but uh, in the case of a uh, the proper um, unfolding of the case uh, all the parties have a responsibility and I would say that uh, yes uh, the responsibility is shared with the, the responsibility uh, is shared with the judges as well. They also need to be mindful of this access to justice. Thank you, uh, Ms. Simon. Uh, thank you, Chief Justice. Justices. I want to acknowledge right at the outset that this is a difficult case for us in which to raise our remedy argument. We well, appreciate- you don't, just, you don't just raise a remedy argument, you raise a Jordan is a problem altogether argument. You're, I mean, I'm the no, I'm, I, I know I'm the one who granted you leave to intervene, but when I read your factum, I, I was sorry that I did. Your factum points to f what you describe as, as fundamental problems, right? Jordan lacks nuance or balance. It gives, and these are your words, gives the guilty a windfall, gives the innocent a brush off, leads to an abdication of justice. And, and your factum points to not sort of actual instances of a remedial problem, but to a theoretical problem with Jordan more, more generally, which is that the Attorney General of Ontario's theoretically ideal framework strikes you as more balanced, whatever that means, than the Jordan framework. And yet your ideal framework um, does not even acknowledge what led to Jordan, which was a chronic and systemic indulgence of delay. Yours is a completely one-sided analysis that does not acknowledge that, which I find ironic, given that you identify the Jordan framework, not just the remedy, the framework as being a tilted 
one-sided assessment. And I'll just put it out there and you can respond to it because all of this persuades me more than ever that as soon as we take away the Damocletian sword of a stay as the remedy for a breach of the right to a trial within a reasonable time, that the culture of complacency will, at least in Ontario, settle right back in. This is to my mind, and I say this with respect, a one-sided misguided submission. I'm disappointed to see the Chief Law Officer of Ontario making it, and I very much regret having been the one to give him the opportunity to use his allotted time here to do that. Justice Brown, if my factum left you with the impression that Ontario does not uh, embrace the command of Jordan, that things need to move quickly, more quickly, then I wrote a poor factum. And that's on me. Because that is not the intention of our argument with respect to the remedy. The principal problem that we see with the remedy right now is that it is getting in the way of timely criminal justice. It's that the promise of Jordan remains unfulfilled. We see Jordan as an important first step, but cases in Ontario and across this country are continuing to take far too long. Jordan I've is entirely predicated on an integrated system of incentives, right? And what you're wanting to do is remove the incentive by lightening the impact of a breach of section 11b so so this isn't just you know that you're you know I, I accept that you want speedy trials too but you call you actually call the jordan framework in this factum an abdication of justice i am i'm i'm frankly shocked i i apologize um if that's that's what I conveyed. What, what I was con well, attempting wrote. to convey is that a stay of proceedings in certain cases in which there has been no harm to the accused and, um, and rather than there being some sort of systematic failing on behalf of the state, we just simply have you know, an individual justice system participant who makes a delay-informed, um, good-faith uh, takes a good faith approach to the prosecution, but at the end of the day, delay sometimes happens and they made a mistake. To stay that case, that's the abdication of justice. That's mm. the type of case which we should see a trial on the merits. Again, our view is that Jordan is the first step and, and we embrace it um, wholeheartedly. Yeah, it's, it's the an abdication of justice, but you embrace it. I mean, but for the entire framework, it's fantastic. Well, what I would say is that we think the stay will always remain on this table. The incentive for government to act expeditiously will always remain on the table. We hope that with a change to the remedy, we could move even faster. I see that my time is just about up. So subject to any questions, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Uh, Maître Boulet. Maître Boulet. Chief Justice, Honorable Justices, good afternoon. I will try and be very sensitive in bringing forth the evidence that is the incomplete nature of the file. I wanted to talk to you about the incomplete file 
within terms of the remedy that is uh, being uh, argued about, and I think it's appropriate uh, not to do so. Simply, we would invite you to uh, revisit the remedy uh, and whereas the entire evidence around the prejudice uh, was not brought before you and was not brought before the Court of Appeal. Uh, to come back to what uh, Justice Cote said with regard to the evidence of prejudice that was pre presented at the trial level and uh, the appellant or the respondent uh, talked about evidence of prejudice uh, that it is the case is extremely incomplete uh, if we take just Mr. Felks, he testified as concerns the prejudice. He produced evidence, for example, uh, fines and tickets, and uh, that was not reported in the uh, testimony at the trial level. So, uh, it, so this is where I'm going to try and be very sensitive when we talk about the incomplete nature of this file in order to decide on how the delay should be uh, considered. In the factum from the respondents, on page 14, paragraph 22, we address the matter of admissions. And here I'm going to uh, say uh, so-called admissions because those are not admissions. They are not admissions and they're not even factual admissions, and I'll tell you why. Because in the factum, on page 14, we submitted the following element, that is that the admissions, uh, the document on page 158 of volume six, and which was uh, reproduced in uh, at tab six of our condensed, this document is not signed, and it requires the signature of the attorney of uh, Michel Saint-Marie and you know well that there are a number of parties who are no longer represented by him and it's not because uh, uh, they didn't try to be represented. So that's the first thing. The other element, and I think that this is very relevant and I think uh, Justice Cote actually brought it up. How was this document tabled? Well, it happened on 27, 28, and 30 January, uh, and what where uh, what the appellant is saying is that uh, well, it was not uh, tabled with the consent of the parties, and it was not even uh, class. It was not even uh, classified. It was uh, tabled as a working document. Uh, Mr. Labelle rose and uh, presented his arguments over three days to explain that in the document that yes, it was uh, written arguments because uh, Mr. Labelle himself uh, introduced a table. There was a table that had already been introduced by the appellant and there were a number of comments on the fact that this document, which is a so-called admission, and it even says that it's a joint uh, uh, presentation of the parties, well, that's not true at all. And so what was introduced, I just want to bring up some other uh, things in that regard. If you take volume six on page 
150 and 151. You can see the table of uh, the prosecution. Look at the... Oh, de ce tableau. What's the exhibit number? It says e, I-5. But that is supposed to be the admission document. Uh, so the exhibit I-5 is supposed to be the table of the prosecution. So if we look at the facts uh, that were established at the trial, and this is where... I said, well, yes, we know that uh, Ms. Simon was not, uh, she was not at the trial level, but out of fairness for justice and in all transparency, the fact that that exhibit I-1 was a table of the prosecution and exhibit I-5, uh, you don't, well, you don't have it. And the records would certainly have shown that we could agree on that, that the, uh, what, what we saw in the hearing on 27 and 28 January and on the 30th of January as well is that this exhibit I-5 was a bundle of tables. That's what we hear during the hearing. So clearly the list of admissions is not a table. So we know that. Second, uh, you were told that Exhibit I-5 was a number of tables, facts, and procedures that had been prepared for Judge Justice David. And you will remember, after the uh, tabling of the direct indictment, uh, Judge David was seized of this affair, of this matter, with the goal of bringing it all to trial. Well, these are, it is exactly these tables that were introduced in a bundle. So it's clearly not that exhibit in question. So today, and I'm coming back to what Justice Kazurer said on this, what is the legal validity of uh, these admissions? The appellant told you, obviously, that it was an admission of fact, but uh, this cannot be called an admission. It was the arguments of the prosecution on the interpretation that should have been given to what happened on the various dates. What I mean to say by that is this, the document as such is inaccurate on what happened on these various dates. Justice LaBelle at the trial level with number 13. When I'm talking about uh, allegation 13, I'm still in the uh, so-called admission of facts document on the part of the appellant. So you have at volume 6, page 158, tab 6 of the condensed. You have this example that it was the last submission of the consent of everyone. And uh, the appellant uh, said that an ultimatum was given to the defendant, to the respondents here, so that there would be no more submission of consent. But that was expressly denied at the trial level. Something else with regard to allegations 81 and following with regard to what was what what was reported that happened on February 25th 2014 another very relevant example in my opinion so on February 25th 2014 you have what was indicated 
in the list of uh, the so-called admissions. And I would refer you to the table so we can see clearly that it, it does not uh, comply with uh, the with what was said. So let's start with table of the table of the appellant. So I'm on page. Uh, Ms. Boulet, excuse me, I'm sorry to interrupt you. It's just because you're talking about the uh, list of admissions. They're not admissions. Yes, I'm, I just don't want to confuse you. But the uh, Court of Appeal itself, in its decision, it talked about a list of admissions. Uh, for example, paragraph 15 of the uh, ruling of the Court of Appeal, it's talking about a list of admission of the parties. And it, uh, it describes the chronology of the case uh, since 2019. So during the hearing before the Court of Appeal, did the parties, regardless of which one, did they talk about a list of admissions or did, uh, for example, the Crown, did they say we have a list of admissions? Did the defence rise to say, just a minute, we don't have any admissions? How did it happen there with regard to the Court of Appeal? Uh, thank you. Thank you, uh, Madam Justice Cote. Thanks for your question. With regard to the Court of Appeal, uh, obviously I was not there. I did not uh, represent the respondents, but uh, I was able to listen to the te to the hearing, and indeed that document was not presented as admissions on the part of the parties. So, in the context at the Court of Appeal, uh, this was being appealed by the respondents. So, the appellant had not uh, raised at appeal the matter of uh, unreasonable delays. Uh, what Justice LaBelle said over and over was that for him, the decision of the justice, the findings of the ju judges as to the unreasonable delay was accurate, was correct. And uh, so uh, the appellant said, well, it's possible that this uh, could be revisited. We suggest the list of admissions as something to be revisited, but never did Justice Abel say during the hearing that he agreed. And he didn't even say that he, uh, he said that he agreed with the findings of the trial judge with regard to the unreasonable nature of the delays. And that's where I'm saying, uh, well, actually, to come back to your question, uh, Justice Cote, with regard to uh, the Court of Appeal judgment, uh, it is at paragraph 15 where it is said the motion the trial judge oh. a statement of admission that state at length the chronology of the proceedings from the date of the law et là on dit euh, et, et là donc on dit que ça a été reçu euh, des parties là je dois vous dire and then it was said that it was received from the parties and uh, so it was received from the respondent who is now the appellant because uh, Justice Labelle did not table those documents uh, either at Court of Appeal or at uh, tri the trial level. So uh, because I listened to this, I know that this is the case. Yes, but uh, counsel, uh, to follow up the question, uh, the question of my colleague, what do we do with that? He said, uh, Justice said, it's a statement of admissions. What do we do with that? Thank you, uh, Chief Justice, for your question. Uh, 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 Justice Ali said that, but uh, the file was incomplete, and clearly we might have uh, claimed that it was not uh, pleaded before the uh, Court of Appeal, but uh, all of my representatives today are focused on the fact that the file was incomplete and that conclusion of the Judge Ali 
it was confirmed, and I'm uh, arguing that today. So to come back to February 25, 25th, 2014, I'd like to come back to volume six at page 155. So that's where you see what the appellant was arguing with what happened on the different dates. So when we read what is reported in that table, it is different than what is found in the so-called list of admissions. And when you look at volume three, page three, uh, 69, it's the defense's table that refers to February 19th, 2014. And you'll see everything in that list that's highly relevant. The Crown must complete its evidence or disclosure of evidence by such and such a date. None of that is in the statement of admissions, but the evidence had not even been completed. Justice David also found it unreasonable for the Crown to argue that there had to be admissions in order for there to be a re-election. Justice David said that the respondents could not re-elect unless they had the prosecution's consent. That's what they argued before Justice David. They said if the respondents wanted to re-elect, they'd have to agree to some admissions. And the Justice David said that's not how it works. You don't pressure people to agree to a statement of facts. And the judge said that did not even serve the interests of justice to have to take such an approach for the for the crown to take such an approach at trial. And Justice David added that the he would not tolerate this type of tactic from the crown. So those three things are to be found nowhere in the statement of admissions. There's no transcript, and that was another major objection uh, when it came to the completeness of the record. What was essentially on appeal was the motion for unreasonable delay. There was uh, all the evidence on that, but nothing on the rest. Yes, th there should be tables, but those contradict the so-called statement of admissions. But the idea is that the characterization of the, the this approach to the characterization of the delays is certainly not in the, serving the interests of justice. I have a question for you, Ms. Boulet. You're saying that the record was incomplete, but if it had been complete at the Court of Appeal, according to your definition of completeness, are you of the view that the Court of Appeal could have revisited because they simply dealt with the question of whether or not there should be a stay, whether that was the appropriate remedy? But in your opinion, if the record had been complete, could the Court of Appeal have reviewed the trial judge's assessment or characterization of the delays? Well, to answer your question, yes, the characterization of delays is a question of law, so the Court of Appeal could have reviewed it 
if necessary. But that's a completely different question. But before you move on, I'd like to come back to my question. If the Court of Appeal could review the characterization of the delays and if they could, in the alternative, as Ms. Simon said, if they could return the matter, refer the matter back to the Court of Appeal, if we could refer it back to the Court of Appeal and ask them to assess the other nine grounds, what is your position on that? Thank you, Justice Cote, for that supplementary question. And it comes back to the question of Justice Kazerer. And I would refer you to page 81 of the Court of Appeal decision, page 81 of volume 2, referring to the Beliveau, uh, Rahe, and Rice decisions. This all goes to the issue of whether the record has to be complete. If the matter were to be referred back to the Court of Appeal on the assumption that the record is complete, that would basically say that we misunderstood Pater, the Pateras decision. And this would give the uh, Crown a second kick at the can, a second chance. Because they made a mistake, they didn't have a complete record, they tried to appeal with a limited list of admissions and now they're going to get a second chance to fill out the record. So yes, the Court of Appeal could embark on that exercise and there was a lengthy delay. Uh, I'm tempted to say that if you, if you were to recharacterize the delays, I would say that literally there's a presumption and I would say that the Court of Appeal judges uh, basically they said that the the record was incomplete and that basically frustrates the whole exercise. Uh, excuse me for interrupting, I know it's impolite, but I'm trying to understand your position and when I read your factum, unless I'm mistaken, apart from the footnotes uh, to paragraph 22, footnote 14, you're not presenting the argument the same way in your factum. Justice Garneau was the trial judge and he heard the motion to stay the proceedings and he had before him, among other things, R6, the table of uh, the characterization of delays, I1, the Crown's table, and I5, the statement of admissions. And also the decision of Justices Chevalier and the transcript from from the Court of Appeal. I'm trying to figure out, like the Chief Justice said, at the Court of Appeal, they characterized this as uh, the, the, the list of the state as a statement of admissions. That was their term. I say this uh, with all due respect, it seems to me that you're being a bit, uh, you're splitting hairs here. Uh, you're challenging th this because the Court of Appeal opened an unexpected door, an avenue to challenge the very basis of this 
case, a, an opportunity to challenge the factual findings of the trial judge. When you read the trial decision, you might, might criticize the judge, uh, I don't know. Obviously, he used that document in drafting his reasons. When you read the judgment, paragraph by paragraph, you can see it's all based on that one document. But at the Court of Appeal, you didn't make, you didn't take issue with that. And now you've spent 20 minutes before us at the Supreme Court and your, your argument, it's a, it's a good argument. I don't mean to f criticize your argument, but I'm really having a hard time understanding this change in tactic. You, it seems to me, it, it might be better for you to argue that, that there was, uh, that the, the, the Court of Appeal erred in its uh, appreciation, but now they, the Court of Appeal, didn't say that all the evidence was there, but there was enough for the Court of Appeal to make a ruling and that there, then the Crown is saying that there's enough for us to, so that's the challenge before you. Thank you, Justice Kazerer, for your comments and for adding to the first point. And you're suggesting that it was only in a footnote that I raised the issue of the incompleteness of the record but I would refer you to paragraph 22 of our factum. So before you even get to the footnote, I say that the Crown gave this issue uh, uh, a significance that was exaggerated and doubtful. Uh, the way they stress the importance of the statement of admissions. So, uh, and what's even more surprising is that there are things in that statement that are untrue. So in paragraph two, I say, there was a hearing on the motion for unreasonable delay and represent, representations from the parties and uh, more elaborate evidence than the simple, the mere uh, agreed statement of facts, the so-called statement. And I went on, I said the the motion was not decided on paper or on the basis of the record alone. And then paragraph 25, I say the motion to disqualify counsel. Oh, sorry, I'm at the wrong plate, uh, the wrong spot. I said in the factum, it's at paragraph 19 before that. Sorry, the motion to disqualify counsel. I'm on the right point there still, was what triggered a whole series of proceedings uh, and the evidence of that was not produced, was not included in the record. So those are examples I'm giving you. And today in my oral arguments, obviously I'm going further considering the submissions that the appellant has made. I didn't read in the appellant's factum that Mr. LaBelle agreed to the 35 months and he, that he himself had conceded that they, these were admissions or agreed facts. So I did put things in my factum that questioned the appellant statement, but I have to go even further today uh, given everything the appellant argued. And as soon as the 27th, 28th, and 30th of January, that's when uh, it all started in the, with the motion. And we don't have on the record everything that happened. 
Sorry to interrupt you again, Ms. Boulet, but I know you, and I know you weren't counsel at the Court of Appeal, but did Mr. LaBelle at the Court of Appeal say, wait a second, you can't rule on this, you don't have a complete record? Or did the Court of Appeal decide uh, by itself that the record was incomplete? Thank you, Justice Cote, for your question, and I would agree with Ms. Simon when she said it was, she was a bit surprised by paragraph 14 of the Court of Appeal decision, in that that was not the substance of the uh, discussions before the court. And so I would come back to what the Chief Justice said, uh, that the idea of revisiting the issue was, we haven't rejected it outright, but I think I, it, it, it's clear now that the record was incomplete, but I would say that it wasn't something that was argued extensively at the Court of Appeal. Mr. Labelle said that the appellant hadn't challenged the trial judge's decision that the delays were unreasonable. So I would also refer you to paragraph 20, 23 of the appellant's factum where they uh, admit that the record was incomplete. And yet this is a complex case. And one exhibit is the cornerstone of the whole evidence, the evidence of the wiretap and so on. And now the appellants want to argue that the transitional exceptional circumstance is applicable. And just, just one last point. Uh, we are really throwing a lot of questions at you and you're very talented in handling them all. But I would point out that in the factum of Michel Saint-Marie, your co-respondent, in his review of the facts in paragraph six and seven, there's a footnote at the bottom of page two, four and eight. And it says admissions under 655 of the criminal code, appellant's application record, volume six, page 159. In other words, the other respondent is using and relying on those facts, which you say are not even agreed facts. And your co-respondent is using that in his own defense. So that's why we're a bit taken by surprise by your arguments this morning. I'd like to thank you, Justice Kazarer, for your question and even your compliments. Perhaps I would uh, let uh, my friend answer that question, but that document is not without interest because as I said at the beginning, the document was filed as a working document, like a written submission by the prosecution at trial. So it is a document that contains some useful information and Michel Saint-Marie can certainly use that document. He can take things from it. He can take the appellant's own words in crafting his own arguments. But what I'm saying is that that's, that is a document on the record 
but it is leading to findings that are inconsistent with the evidence. That's the danger. And I said earlier that the Court of Appeals footnote on Beliveau and Paternus and other decisions uh, and obviously when you go to take something to appeal you want access to justice and producing all the transcripts can be quite a uh, heavy task but the only issue the Crown wanted to raise on appeal was the issue of the delay and they didn't produce a record that was uh, complete enough to deal with that issue. So for the Court of Appeal to have said that the record was incomplete, well it was the appellant who wanted to appeal and, uh, and if you're going to talk about questions of fact, and it brings me back to the whole issue of this, the transitional measure and this being a complex case, I just want to draw to your attention that there are submissions today suggesting that at trial the appellant had a plan, but there was a finding of fact, a very important finding of fact by Judge Garneau. Uh, he said it over and over again at volume 1, page 58, line 24 and 25, Judge Garneau said the appellant had no plan. And uh, at, on the next page, another factual finding that there was no prosecution plan. Further on, lines 12 to 17, the judge said there was no plan. And I could even repeat what Justice David said about this. He talked about a real blunder or mix-up. Uh, I'd ask you to wrap up, Ms. Boulet. Okay, I will wrap up. Uh, Chief Justice, uh, thank you. I didn't even see the uh, red light. So I'll wrap up, not by raising another issue that I didn't have time to get to, but I'd like to raise the fact that there are two important things that the Crown did. It's in my condensed book. And I think I made the point quite clearly at 1C on my outline that it took 1,544 days for the Crown to prefer a direct, invitement, a direct indictment and 385 days after that appearance. So uh, that uh, shows that the appellant could have acted much sooner if they truly wanted to settle the issue. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Boulet. Chief Justice, thank you. Mesdames les juges, messieurs les juges, I propose making my arguments today in English, but I uh, welcome questions in French. I have three main submissions uh, to present to the court, although I suspect I will be spending uh, less time on the first submission, uh, given uh, Maître Boulet's comprehensive uh, review of the record. Uh, the first is that the appeal should be dismissed because of an unsatisfactory record. Uh, the second is that the time required to adjudicate extraordinary remedies should not be subject to a categorical rule under the exceptional circumstances framework of Jordan. 
And the third is that this court should decline to revisit the question of the appropriate remedy for a breach of section 11B of the charter. Turning to my first argument, the appellant crown comes before this court with an insufficient record to allow for a meaningful review of the trial judge's findings of fact on the section 11B motion. The crown did not have a sufficient record in the Quebec Court of Appeal, and it does not have a sufficient record here. The issue the crown brought to the Court of Appeal as a respondent, and here, could be a question of law, but the evidence underpinning it is insufficient. As respondent at the Quebec Court of Appeal, the crown failed to marshal the appropriate record to enable the Court of Appeal to engage in a de novo review of the attribution of specific periods of delay. Despite Justice Healy's reasons for decision at paragraph 14, as this court noted, in which he made clear that the court was, quote, unable to review or determine whether the judge's assessment of the delays in this case was inadequate or mistaken, it comes before this court with no better record. It is well known. Mr. Foda, I have a question for you. When a court, be it the the provincial court, the court of appeal wants to uh, take a position based on the fact that uh, a file is not complete. Uh, is it not uh, a question of fairness to tell the parties uh, or to give an opportunity to the parties to complete the file? Uh, merci, Madame la Côté. Thank you very much, uh, Justice Côté, for that question. In my respectful submission, the issue of procedural fairness on appeal uh, is better framed in the sense of allowing the parties in our adversarial system, as, as uh, you noted, Justice Cote, whether it's at the provincial court, the superior court, the court of appeal, or before this honorable court, our adversarial system of litigation requires that the parties who seek a particular remedy sustain that request with the appropriate record. As this court noted in Mian, uh, Regina and Mian from 2014, there are limits to what courts of appeal can do and raise on their own before uh, it begins potentially compromising the ap appearance of fairness. We say where the Crown, as respondent on appeal, sought to have uh, findings of fact revisited, it was incumbent upon uh, the Crown to proffer that record before the court, and it was entirely reasonable for the defense to uh, not assist the Crown in perfecting its record. It is well known in Quebec that the appellate court requires a sufficient record. Uh, this is specifically uh, known in relation to appeals of Section 11B charter decisions. Uh, from, uh, it requires a record from the court below in order to engage in a review of the correctness of the findings of fact. The Belliveau decision is a 2016 decision from the Quebec Court of Appeal. Uh, and it would have been well known to uh, the Crown uh, respondent at the Quebec Court of Appeal. Are, are you suggesting there's a different set of rules in this regard for the province of Quebec than for the rest of the country? Uh, there is not. Thank you, Justice Rowe. Uh, in fact, uh, there is jurisprudence in Quebec, uh, in particular the case of uh, Rice, for example, because of longstanding uh, delays uh, that have plagued uh, the production of transcripts uh, in uh, Quebec. Uh, there uh, is a practice, in my respectful submission, to allow the parties to complete the record uh, in a manner uh, that is satisfactory for the court to undertake the the, 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 the task at hand. In other words, if the uh, 
if at an 11B, a section 11B motion, a trial level motion, the parties are content to file the audio recordings of the proceedings uh, instead of uh, official transcripts, the parties can do that to avoid delays. If uh, that is relied upon at the uh, trial court uh, by, um, by the parties and by the trial judge, and uh, no issue is made with respect to the completeness of the record at the trial level, then at the court of appeal, certainly that record has to be reproduced. The, the record doesn't need to be uh, supplemented or made better in any sense, but certainly the record that's before the trial court has to be reproduced before the court of appeal. So uh, the respondent, Michel Saint-Marie, respectfully submits that at the very least, if the findings of fact were to be revisited by the Quebec Court of Appeal, the five years worth of audio recordings of court hearings that were before Justice Garneau ought to have been reproduced before the Quebec Court of Appeal. And Mr. There Fo Mr. Foda, um, I think you've answered, uh, I hope you've answered my colleague's qu question sufficiently. I'm, I'm going to bring you back to the comment that I, I addressed to your colleague about your own factum, which perhaps was unfair to Maître Boulet. Paragraph 13 of the factum, you say, in arguing the Quebec Court of Appeal erred in failing to revisit the findings of fact, the appellant crown relies on the party's admissions under Section 655 of the Criminal Code on the Section 11B motion. This is an unsatisfactory record upon which to reverse the trial judge. You say elsewhere in your factum, you refer to these admissions for your own account of the facts. Are you now changing your position that these are not admissions and that they're, this is some, that when you describe them as parties admissions under 655, you were mistaken at paragraph 13? Uh, thank you, Justice Kazifa, for your uh, question. In my respectful submission, it is not the label that matters, but rather the substance of the argument that the record was incomplete before. The no, it's not the label I'm talking about. I mean, it's how you described it. You described it as the party's admissions under 655. Now, are you retreating from that? So, Justice Kazira, thank you for that question. I am not in a position to uh, retreat or to... Um, uh, or in this particular case, to accede to that characterization. Because in my respectful submission, it was the appellant crown's burden to put before this court the appropriate record. Having not that was not that question, Mr. Foda. The question of my colleague is quite clear. Do you maintain what you wrote in your factum, yes or no? I am content to, uh, to uh, rely on my factum. Uh, whether or not the agreed statement of fact was in fact tendered and marked as an exhibit accepted by the parties is not something that is within my personal knowledge. Certainly, mind you, mind you, you're in good company. Justice uh, Healy believes the same thing as you do. Yes, and, and I, I was not present neither at the Court of Appeal nor at the trial. And the point that I make simply is that, uh, well, as a, as a respondent on appeal, uh, in my respectful submission, the respondent was not um, out of line in terms of repeating the label that the appellant crown had placed on this document. But uh, all along, the respondent, Michel Saint-Marie, has taken the position that the record uh, before this court is incomplete. And one of the reasons for which the, even the admissions of the parties is an incomplete document is because it is not the, the record of what occurred when that exhibit was 
deposited before the court, which uh, Maître Boulet is contesting, uh, the, any qualifications on that document would have been important for the trial judge and for the Quebec Court of Appeal to know. There are, uh, there's at least in one instance in that document, a scratched out word and initials. The document is not signed by either the lawyer for Michel Sainte-Marie or Michel Sainte-Marie. It doesn't even contemplate that document on its face. It doesn't even contemplate binding the other parties. And in my respectful submission, particularly when it comes to the findings of fact that underlie this case and the trial judge's reasons for denying a stay, having nevertheless found a violation of Section 11B, it is imperative to know what those findings of fact were and what the evidence was in support of them. Justice Garneau held that the absence of prejudice was one of the reasons for which a stay was being denied. He also held that that prejudice could have been mitigated had the self-represented accused simply hired counsel. Well, Michel Saint-Marie was never self-represented. Michel Saint-Marie was entirely successful in resisting the Crown's conflict of interest motions. Mr. Felix was similarly not self-represented, and he testified as to his prejudice. He testified on the motion. And so the findings of fact that Justice Garneau relied upon to deny a stay of proceedings for all parties, including Michel Saint-Marie, in our respectful submission, it would have been absolutely crucial for the Crown, an imperative for the Crown on appeal to tender those before the Quebec Court of Appeal so an appropriate decision on appeal could have been made. And Michel Saint-Marie, please, before this court, do not revisit the sins of the children upon the father in the sense that the extraordinary remedies that were launched by Mélanie and Dax Saint-Marie were not launched by Michel Saint-Marie. Of course, Michel Saint-Marie accepts responsibility for the delays that were caused by the initial uh, contesting of the jurisdiction of the preliminary inquiry judge to hear the conflict of interest motion. But when we are dealing with um, a multi-accused uh, prosecution, in our respectful submission, the finding of fact that the Crown uh, has not uh, urged this court uh, to revisit is the absence of a plan, global vision for the case, which we say uh, dominates, supersedes, uh, and overlaps with the period of time during which the extraordinary remedies were being litigated in the lower courts. Recall that it was in 2009 when the Crown noted that there was a potential conflict of interest uh, problem. And it was not until the 9th of December, 2013, when a um, direct indictment was preferred by the Crown. Had the Crown either preferred a direct indictment early on, had the Crown um, litigated the conflict of interest motion in the Superior Court uh, early on, uh, those many of those extraordinary remedies would have been obviated. And so when there's an overlap of the period of time during which the extraordinary remedies are being litigated and a time during which there is a finding of fact that there was no plan or global vision for the case, we say that cannot be defense delay because it is not delay that it's solely attributable to the defense. It is at most shared delay. And even if all of that delay is subtracted from the total delay of 77 months, we are left with a delay of 35 months, candidly over the Jordan ceiling. And the Crown has admitted, uh, has uh, conceded to this court that there is no evidence underpinning the findings of prejudice before this court. We say that is also a full answer on appeal 
how in the absence of any evidence in relation to prejudice can this court find that the transitional exceptional circumstance should be engaged? And Mr. Foda, on that question of prejudice, Maître Simon said to us that uh, she relies on uh, what Justice Garneau said at page 60 of the uh, appellant's record. So she says we have those findings and uh, deference is owed to those findings. This is essentially what she said on prejudice. And, and we are not asked, we as, as respondents are not asking this court to revisit the findings, the factual findings of prejudice. The respondents here at, and as appellants at the Quebec Court of Appeal were advancing an error of law on the face of the trial judge's decision, namely, the consideration of prejudice at the back end after deciding that there was unreasonable delay, that was an error of law that could be cured without reference to the facts. And that is in fact what the Quebec Court of Appeal accepted. We say rightly so. In a sense, Justice Garneau's decision was almost prescient in a sense that the first part of his decision, analyzing the unreasonable delay, it was entirely consistent with Jordan. The second part of his decision, denying the remedy, that is where he fell into error. Because after finding unreasonable delay, he in effect... Um, uh, whether, whether he was prescient or not, and he was deciding it under, the, under Morin. He was, he was deciding it in 2015. He didn't have any idea of what Jordan was. And he had a duty, as he had a duty to take prejudice into account in deciding whether there had been an 11B violation. And the Crown has conceded that he's made, he made an error when he applied it to remedy, but when you read his judgment as a whole, he made, as my colleague said, a factual finding that the prejudice was not associated with the delays, but was associated with the, the les accusations, as he said. So, so prescient, I don't, I don't see his, his prescience is, is perfectly irrelevant to, 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 to things. What's, what's important is, from the perspective of where we are, is whether under the, under the uh, uh, mesure uh, transitoire exceptionnel, we can take this into account. Uh, and in fairness to your colleague, the Crown, she also mentioned le caractère moyennement complexe du dossier. Thank you, Justice Cassirer. Uh, in characterizing Justice Garneau's decision as prescient, uh, what I'm uh, attempting to, uh, to do is simply uh, note that his decision finding a breach of Section 11b is entirely consistent with Jordan. But his it's not consistent with Morin. And that's, that's, I mean, that's the central point that Justice Cassirer makes. It is inconsistent with Morin because he does not appear to understand the legal significance of a finding that there is no prejudice. Well, I, I would respectfully, thank you very much, Justice Brown. I would respectfully submit that the findings of absence of prejudice were particularized findings with respect to um, certain defendants that could not apply across the board. And in any event, under the Morin framework, a stay was entirely uh, warranted. Uh, the total delay was 77 months and his findings of fact that uh, in our respectful submission, are of significant deference uh, are the, the lack of a plan and the lack of global vision for uh, a, uh, the prosecution. And that, that really forecloses the Crown's ability to rely 
on the transitional exceptional circumstances in our respectful submission, because the finding of fact that there was no adequate plan or global vision from the case, uh, those are uh, facts uh, that speak directly to whether or not the Crown can rely on uh, the uh, complex case exception under Jordan and the, uh, as what this court says, uh, I believe in Jordan at paragraph uh, 61, if I may just have a moment. I hope you're being fair to Justice Garneau here when you talk about individual prejudice. This is, seems to be a new point uh, in your corner. And I just recall to you that he, at page 60 of his judgment, said, et aussi le tribunal tient compte des préjudices individualisés par les différents. And also, it takes into account the individualized uh, prejudice. Back to. Well, um, in my respectful submission, that, fi that finding of, of fact, those findings of fact underlying the absence of prejudice uh, would have been necessary for the Crown to put before the court should it uh, urge the court to rely on uh, an exceptional circumstance to justify uh, um, the absence of a stay or the, uh, sorry, the transitional uh, exception. And because specifically the transitional exceptional, the transition, uh, transitional exceptional circumstances uh, will uh, requires a con uh, paragraph 96 of Jordan uh, requires a contextual assessment sensitive to the manner in which the previous framework was applied and the fact that the party's behavior cannot be judged strictly against a standard of which they had no notice. For example, prejudice and the seriousness of the offense often played a decisive role in whether delay was unreasonable under the previous framework. So in the respondent Michel Saint-Marie's submission, uh, the analysis of prejudice in order to meet the Crown's burden that a transitional exceptional circumstance applies, it was for the Crown to put that evidence before the Quebec Court of Appeal. And the, the Crown did uh, proffer its factum on appeal the, on the Quebec, at the Quebec Court of Appeal in the record before this court, and they did specifically plead that the transitional exceptional circumstance applied. I would like to take some time, Justices, to speak about um, sort of the uh, the principle, my second argument, that is that a categorical rule regarding extraordinary remedies uh, should not be adopted. The exceptional circumstance framework only applies where the ceiling is, um, uh, is exceeded. Uh, in our respectful submission, there's no evidence that in every case where an extraordinary remedy is launched by a party, that that will occur. Uh, moreover, extraordinary remedies are not unforeseeable in criminal litigation, and they were not unforeseen in this case. Uh, under the Jordan framework, extraordinary remedies don't fit either exceptional circumstances or discrete events, because there are some cases where an extraordinary remedy application will be reasonable, and some cases will, where it will be meritless. The Jordan framework is sufficiently flexible to allow an analysis of case-specific characterization of delays without a general rule modifying the applicability of the ceilings. And I take that from this court's case in KGM. Further, the whole point of Jordan is to give the, the Crown and the defense an incentive to keep, keep the case going. And um, I am sensitive to uh, Mr. Chief Justice's comments uh, this morning, as well as yesterday, uh, that 
judges and courts also play a role in ensuring that the culture of complacency does not persist. And in our respectful submission, that also applies to delays in superior courts to have extraordinary remedies heard. If um, th there are mechanisms by which extraordinary remedies can be heard with dispatch, these are mechanisms that are available to the courts and to the parties. And uh, it appears that in this case, the Crown was somewhat dilatory in making use of those remedies. In various uh, criminal proceedings rules across the country, for example, Rule 43 of the Ontario Criminal Proceedings Rules, uh, there was Règle 25 of the Quebec uh, Superior Court Rules. Because of the suspension of proceedings that occurs when extraordinary remedy is launched, there is a mechanism to bypass that suspension of the proceedings and allow the proceedings to continue in the Ontario Court of Justice. Those motions are available to the Crown or to any party that wants to continue the case with dispatch. Moreover, there is the uh, common law extraordinary remedy of procedendo that was in fact developed to respond to um, dilatory uh, prerogative writs. To, it is from the Latin ablative to proceed, to uh, force the parties to proceed despite a pending extraordinary remedy. And the Crown uh, the Crown or the defense can also apply to summarily dismiss. Yeah, isn't that a great idea when you can't get the first base as to whether the parties are in a conflict or not? You know, our justice system is burdened beyond belief as it is. And here you are, We, your friend says, look, we tried to narrow the case. We tried to narrow the people involved. This was a huge, big case, huge, you know, organized crime. We narrowed it down to a few people, and the defense, for I don't know how long, kept putting the crown in the impossible position of saying, if we go ahead and, and these people are in conflict, we can affect forget about this case. And you never did anything to try and resolve this, nothing. Now you come to this court and say, oh, poor us. You know, we were doing our best. The Crown wasn't doing what it was supposed to. It seems to me that when the judge below was talking about prejudice and no prejudice befalling your clients, what he was really saying was, you put up every barrier possible in this case to obstruct the case proceeding forward without any attempts to conciliate, to work together. And so... How do you come, how dare you come and complain about delay when that is precisely what it is that you as a group wanted in order that you could try and get the big 11B prize? Okay. I just, fi I find your submissions just so uh, obviously and transparently, you know, uh, kind of, and I, I hate to say this, but they, they bear no relationship to the reality of what went on in this case. Thank you, Justice Moldaver. I, I would simply um, respectfully submit that Marc Labelle was not removed as counsel of record for Michel Saint-Marie. And throughout the proceedings, um, both in the Superior Court and at the Quebec Court of Appeal, there was some tolerance to what we would call tagging along by the other Saint-Maries. And I would uh, respectfully um, uh, urge the court to consider uh, this court's comments in, in, in Vassal, where uh, 
in, as this court says, in many cases, delay caused by proceeding against multiple co-accused must be accepted as a fact of life and must be considered in deciding well, having, what... Having written Vassal, I can tell you that we were talking about a situation where you have a bit player who is being dragged along by other co-accused who are uh, obstructing and delaying and doing all kinds of things. Um, and probably in that case, I mean, the Crown should have severed. And, and so let's not talk about vassal here. Everybody in this case was about on relatively equal par in terms of involvement from what I can understand, so. Thank you, Justice Moldaver. I would respectfully submit that that cannot reasonably be said about Richard Felks, for example, who had his own separate lawyer um, and- And uh, who had an opportunity to have his own preliminary hearing and to do his own thing and chose not to, thank you. Well, in my respectful submission, uh, that um, what actually occurred is that the Crown uh, preferred a direct indictment shortly after making that offer to Mr. Phelps. And that finding of fact that the Crown should have pr uh, preferred the direct indictment tout au début, right at the beginning, uh, that is a finding of fact that would have significantly impacted the delay that was caused in this case. I, I, I want to make a few more submissions specifically on the question of um, uh, uh, on extraordinary remedies. Extraordinary remedies can also be uh, resorted to by third parties. And so the a priori rule that the appellant proffers does not make sense in this case. If a third party brings a certiorari or prohibition respecting their subpoena or evidence, the defendant's speedy trial could be delayed. And if the court cannot accommodate a motion to quash by the defendant for nine months, his speedy trial is still delayed. He is forced to choose between a faster trial and a less fair trial. This, in my respectful submission, makes no sense because he is guaranteed both under the Constitution. And we propose a case-by-case -case analysis where the trial judge would be best placed to assess the reasons for any delay stemming from extraordinary remedies. And Justice Moldaver, that is, specific, that is precisely what Justice Garneau did in this case when he found, as a finding of fact, and we accept that the contesting of the preliminary inquiry judge's jurisdiction was inutile and non avenu. It was uh, useless and unwarranted. And we accept the delay that stems from that. But uh, in our respectful submission, it is not fair to extrapolate that finding to find that the entire delay from the extraordinary remedies is attributable to the defense in the circumstances of this case. Unless that you look at this, as we said in Jordan and later in Cody, look at the manner in which the defense is conducting itself. And when one looks at the manner in which the defense is conducting itself here, one comes away with one answer only. This was a concerted effort on the part of all the parties to obstruct, throw up every barrier possible so that this case would never get to trial. Thank you, Justice Moldaver. I would respectfully uh, disagree with that characterization. The person who would have been best placed to make that finding would have been Justice Garneau, who had a case management conference in November, uh, two months prior to the 11B uh, hearing. Uh, Moreover, uh, the, in, in, in our respectful submission, a case-by-case -case analysis. As this court holds in Godi, uh, Cody, uh, there is deference owed to those uh, highly discretionary findings of fact with respect to the uh, any conduct judge, of the parties. Any judge who finds after 77 months that there is no prejudice to the accused is clearly, it seems to me, the, the circumstantial evidence is overwhelming. And what it says to me is there's no prejudice because you got precisely 
what it is you were trying to get. Thank you, Justice Moldaver. In my respectful submission, if it were a circumstantial case, the Crown asking this court to uh, reverse the stays ought to have proffered the full record on appeal to allow this court to meaningfully assess that. But more importantly, the findings of fact by the trial judge that there was no plan, that there was a lack of vision for the case, those are findings that are certainly at least on equal footing as the findings of the absence of prejudice. And in those circumstances, in my respectful submission, the appeal should be dismissed. You know, just I'll just say one more thing. You're putting this case into a category. I've seen your stuff, Oquan, Vassal, neither of which have anything to do with this case or this prosecution. And in fact, I have no doubt that your friend, Ms. Simone, is telling it straight as can be that the Crown did a lot of preparation here to narrow this down and try and keep it tight keep it focused, and now you're talking about O'Quan, where there's hundreds of accused, and Vassal, where it's a case where there are multiple accused, about six or five, as I recall, where one person is complaining because he had really nothing, such a bit role in it, and yet he's being dragged along by all these other accused who are putting up every barrier to try not to get to trial. So it just seems to me everything you're saying sounds good until you actually look at what really happened here. Thank you, Justice Moldaver. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, if I might just have a brief moment to conclude. I would allow you to conclude, yes, please. <laughs> Thank you so much, Chief Justice. In uh, Respondent uh, Michel Saint-Marie's respectful uh, submission, there is an absence of a satisfactory record. Uh, the uh, extraordinary, the categorical rule urged by uh, uh, by the appellate crown should yield to a case-by-case -case assessment. And uh, this is uh, not the, the appropriate case in our respectful submission to revisit the rule in Rehi. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Fouda. Uh, Ms. Erin Dan. Yes, uh, good afternoon and thank you. Um, on behalf of the Criminal Lawyers Association, I find myself in the unique position of saying, we would not mind if the court completely ignores our submissions. Our application for intervention was premised on um, uh, this court uh, accepting the invitation of the Attorney General of Ontario to revisit the question of remedy. But we agree with the appellant, the respondents, and the AQAAD that that issue does not arise in the context of this case, and it would not be appropriate for the court to revisit Rehi um, in those circumstances in a sort of legal and factual uh, vacuum. Our position is that the Attorney General of Ontario in uh, asking the court to revisit Rehi is in fact asking the court to overturn uh, Jordan as well. Uh, and in our submission, that invitation rests on a fundal fundamental misunderstanding of Jordan and what it did and sought to do. The, uh, it ignores first that in setting the presumptive ceilings uh, as set out in Jordan, this court took careful, uh, carefully into account uh, the interests not only of the accused, but of victims, witnesses, and the society in speedy trials on their merits. Um, and the integrity uh, or the damage to the integrity to the, of the criminal justice system where trials are unduly delayed. It also mistakes in our, our view uh, the doctrinal clarity and the uh, resulting predictability and outcome that Jordan 
produces with mechanical calculation. Uh, the CLA submits that there, Jordan clearly does not create a situation of automatic stays beyond uh, a, a certain number, but rather um, ensures that um, a violation of 11B is only established where there is an abject failure of the state to meet its constitutional obligation to bring an accused to trial within a reasonable time. And in that sense, it is entirely consistent with the principles informing uh, when a stay is awarded in abuse of, of uh, process um, context, for example, uh, that a stay is the necessary and appropriate remedy where there is a violation of Section 11B. The, <coughs> excuse me, the invitation of the Attorney General invites this court to reinsert the doctrinal and practical problems of Moran at simply at a different stage of the proceedings. Um, it would reintroduce the uncertainty caused by the highly subjective assessment of institutional versus uh, inherent um, uh, delay, uh, the highly subjective exercise of assessing actual or inferred prejudice, both of which did nothing to serve the interests of the accused nor the public's interest in speedy trials. It also invites a return to a retroactive approach where what I call the squeaky accused gets the oil, um, where lawyers for well-heeled accused can posture and set date court and roll the dice to try and win the remedy that they, they seek to avoid responsibility. Um, it plucks the accused with the means and the ability to complain most loudly and moves them to the front of the prosecution line. And the CLA submits that the, the remedial force of Jordan was that it created incentives for the whole line to move faster. We accept what this court said in Jordan and says today that all justice system participants have a role to play in efficient trials, but not all justice system participants are positioned to play the same role individual accused, individual defense lawyers can do their best within the existing system to move particular cases forward in an efficient manner, but they can't build more courtrooms, they can't hire more uh, court clerks, and they can't change police or crown policies to make use of diversion programs like the uh, judicial referral program referred to in this court, by this court in Zora, that would get out the backlog of fail to comply charges that cause no harm. Those are the type of systemic changes that are required if we are going to solve the stubborn problem of delay. And not um, unmarginalized and self-represented accused, unlike the state, have neither the capacity nor the constitutional obligation to bring themselves promptly to trial. We eliminate the stay and we, we would eliminate the incentive for those in a position of power who can make the necessary changes to do so on a systemic level. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Ms. Dunn. Speaking for myself, I can assure you that, uh, speaking for myself, that uh, the court has no intention to revisit Jordan in the um, upcoming years. Uh, Maître, Be Maître Bello. Mr. Bello, Chief Justice, Justices, I'd like to thank the court for giving the Quebec Defense Lawyers Association, the AQAAD, the opportunity to speak to you today. There's two reasons we'd like uh, for you to 
decline to follow the Crown's recommendation here. The first is on the Rahe decision. There, no, the need for a departure from that decision has not been shown, and the fact situation in this case does not either, lend itself to that exercise, and without an appropriate factual basis, it's not desirable to make this type of change. Changing Rahe would have significant effects on the smooth operation of the court system. There was no discussion here at trial or at appeal uh, that, that went to the well-foundedness of the Rahe decision or any shortcomings of it. Uh, there was no discussion of the effects on the administration of justice of any change to Rahe. The other reason not to follow the recommendation of the Ontario Attorney General is that there's no illustration that Rahe is dysfunctional or that it's uh, outdated. Quite the opposite. The recent case law shows that the Rahe rule needs to be maintained if Jordan to has, is to have any chance of producing lasting effects. The Attorney General of Ontario is proposing a different perspective when it comes to remedies for violations of Section 11B. In Jordan, this court underscored that the Moray model was causing uncertainty and some vagueness and, and a culture of complacency. And everyone knows that inertia is the poison that's causing unacceptable delay. And under Jordan, the instruction was that simple measures have to be taken that would have predictable results. And the court defined what reasonable delay meant with a specific calendar, specific timelines, and Jordan imposed on the court system a requirement to hold trials within a reasonable time and to deliver the goods on that promise. This is a promise that the system has to keep in all cases. If Jordan is to work, it's for a very simple reason. Rahi. Rahi is the Damocletian sword that Justice Brown referred to earlier this morning. There are two questions about remedies for 11B violations. First, was there a violation of the right to trial within a reasonable time? Jordan eliminates the unpredictability and the uncertainty around that question. And then the second question is, what's the remedy? And there's one thing that's been constant for the 30 years, and that is Rahe. Rahe eliminates any uncertainty around the remedy, and the certainty about the remedy is such that participants in the justice system have no choice but to comply with Jordan. Jordan is an attempt to meet the challenge uh, of the court system's the limits to the court system's capacity. If the court were to depart from Rahe, the court would be reintroducing uncertainty and 
a lack of clarity around the whole issue of remedies for 11b violations. So the whole culture of complacency could be reborn, so to speak, and the deterrent uh, for this culture of complacency would be gone. This case is a perfect illustration of what would happen if Rehi were no longer applied. Court judges would do exactly what the trial judge did here, and that is nothing. And when there's a right that's violated and there's no remedy, it's not a right. You can't call it a right anymore. So everything that's been marshaled to implement Jordan would be neutralized. So perhaps the day will come when there is a demonstration on the facts that the combined effect of Jordan and Rehi are causing some dysfunctional results. And perhaps at that point in time, the debate on Rehi should be reopened. But we would respectfully submit, but that day is not today. That demonstration has not yet been made. And that is why we would ask that you dismiss the Attorney General of Ontario's request. Thank you, Mr. Bolo. Reply, Ms. Simon. Simply in closing, what we're saying is that the trial judge, despite uh, the flaws, balanced the interests of justice, and uh, that is why we um, uh, made the arguments we did. May I have a question, Ms. Simon? Uh, Ms. Boulet and Mr. Foda are challenging the uh, qualification of uh, Justice Healy of the list of the party admissions, saying that it was a working document and not an official document. I would like to have your opinion on that, please. Answer. On that position, the document is the one that was produced uh, in the factum submitted to the Court of Appeal. And uh, so that it, it was in their appendices and it was in light of the fact that it was considered omissions that we put forward our observations. And in the factum that was uh, submitted by Michel Saint-Marie and that all the other accused pointed out, there was no challenging of the trial judge's findings. And we see that in the first paragraphs on the delays. I don't know exactly which paragraphs they were, but that's exactly in that spirit. And another important point, it relates the hearings, the content of the hearings, but obviously the qualification in law, well, everyone has their own arguments, but uh, uh, the purposes in the admissions was uh, the reproduction. Uh, I apologize. Excuse me, uh, Madam Justice Cote. I just wanted, well, okay, the description of Judge Healy, is it accurate? That is, in the French version of his ruling, the list of the admissions of the parties. I think you said in your 
presentation in your arguments. You talked about uh, joint statements on the part of the parties. Do you respect that? Yes, the definition is accurate and it is based on uh, what the appellants used as a qualification. I apologize, uh, Justice Kuti. No problem, uh, Justice Kessler. Ms. Simo, whether we call them admissions or not, that document was a chronology of what happened, as you said. And I think that instead of squabbling as to whether we should call them admissions or not, the question is, is it complete enough for the Court of Appeal to rule? Or to rule as they did? Because when we read the document, we can see uh, the dates and when things happened. It's more of a chronology than anything else. Answer. Yes, with all the indications for every one of the steps, the major outlines, uh, the major uh, occurrences, and yes, we argue that that was sufficient, especially as it is linked to uh, the question that was being put to the Court of Appeal on which to rule as to see whether it was in compliance with the Belleville 201. That was sufficient to answer to that. Thank you. Is that the end of your reply? Yes, thank you very much for having listened. I'd like to thank all the uh, all counsel for their arguments. I would ask them to remain available to the court. Thank you. La Cour, the court. Merci. Uh, thank you. I'd like to thank counsel for their arguments. The court is now ready to rule. It's a unanimous decision. I would invite Justice Kazerer to read the reasons. Justice Kazerer. Thank you, Chief Justice. The Crown appealed from a decision of the Court of Appeal of Quebec quashing four convictions and ordering a stay of proceedings to benefit the respondents as a result of a violation of their right to be tried within a reasonable time. The appellant is calling for the matter to be referred back to the Court of Appeal to rule on the nine other grounds of appeal that weren't dealt with, which the Court of Appeal felt was unnecessary to do under the circumstances. In 2009, the accused were charged with uh, conspiracy to launder money, with money laundering and criminal organization offense. In 2015, uh, they moved for a stay of proceedings under 11B and 24 of the Charter. In December 2015, before the Jordan decision was handed down in 2016, the Court of, Ape the Court of Quebec uh, felt that this was not an appropriate remedy and found that there had been a 77-month delay. The trial judge found that there had been a violation of Section 11B of the Charter. However, he refused to order a stay of proceedings on the grounds that the delay did not cause any prejudice to the accused. The trial judge decided that there was just as much prejudice stemming from the accusation and not from the unreasonable delay. And he found that there was a, that society had an interest in justice being rendered 
and having the accused brought to trial. And those are the reasons of the uh, Court of Quebec. The conviction, the, the accused were convicted of the charges and the Court of Appeal felt that the trial judge had no other choice than to order a stay of proceedings after finding a violation of Section 11B. That was according to R versus Rahe. The Court of Appeal refused to revisit the reasons of the trial decision on the Section 11B uh, issue. The Court of Appeal felt that the record was in a, insufficient or inadequate and, and also that the trial judge's reasons were lacking. In the Court of Appeal was of the view that there was an error but the error wasn't conclusive as to the result. The, it's, the uh, Court of Appeal, it's our view that the Court of Appeal erred in relying on the uh, faulty decision of the trial judge. With all due respect, the trial judge did err in his assessment of the prejudice. Uh, it should have gone to whether or not there had been a violation of 11b as per R versus Morin, 1992, a decision of this court. However, despite the error, a functional analysis uh, reveals that the court did take into account the proper factors and arrived at the right result in ordering a stay of proceedings. Although the trial judge erred in, dis in the step or the stage at which he took prejudice into account, he did uh, arrive at the right conclusion on the uh, finding of an unreasonable delay and the Court of Appeal failed to follow the Morin framework. Under the circumstances, we're all of the view that the Court of Appeal erred in ordering a stay of, a, a stay of proceedings that the trial judge himself refused to do or declined to do. The Court of Appeal revisited the characterization of the delays on the grounds that they declined to do so because the record was incomplete. On appeal, the Crown produced an agreed statement of facts, uh, a joint statement by the parties under 655 of the Criminal Code, and that statement set out a, chron a chronology of the proceedings and the Court of Appeal did not analyze that at all and it was incumbent upon the appeal court to embark on that exercise. The, in paragraph 14 of the Court of Appeal decision there was no justification uh, for the court's decision in that regard and although a court is not bound by a joint statement of facts, that can be useful and help to reduce, such a statement of facts can help reduce delays. See, for example, Bryant versus the Queen, 2021, QCCA, paragraph three. The evidence on the record does 
make it possible to conclude that the respondents were responsible for most of the delays they complain about and they attempted to derail the proceedings by multiplying their motions and uh, most of these motions were unsuccessful. Those delays were largely but not exclusively attributable to the defense and must be deducted from the total. Furthermore, the respondents caused yet further delay on insisting on a lawyer they wanted to represent them despite a conflict of interest. In 2011, the, the judge presiding over the prelim, preliminary uh, inquiry disqualified that lawyer and as a result, they represented themselves. Despite the conflict of interest, they continued to insist that their father's counsel, Michel Saint-Marie, uh, that their father's counsel should continue to represent them. And that line of conduct was clearly untenable and caused further delay. Our conclusion is the same when it comes to Richard Felks. Although the conflict of interest did not concern him directly, he never showed any concern about the delays caused by the co-accused. The Crown repeatedly in, uh, offered him to have his own preliminary inquiry, but he declined. Jordan, when applied to the facts of this case, would have... Uh, would stand for the proposition that uh, a party cannot use their own delay uh, and I would refer here to Askov and Jordan. The appellant submits that once the appropriate deductions are made the net delay is 35 months at most. The respondents Melanie Saint-Marie, Dax Saint-Marie and Richard Felks refer to this same calculation in their factum. Assuming, for the sake of discussion, that the residual delay exceeds the presumptive ceiling in Jordan, the presumption of an unreasonable delay can be reversed or overcome if there are exceptional circumstances. The exceptional transitional circumstance can apply when it is demonstrated that the time is justified by the fact that the parties complied reasonably with the prevailing law at the time. Cody, 2017, Supreme Court, paragraph 68. In R versus Rice, 2018, QCCA, 1998, page 102, Justice Vauclair pointed out that a court can look at the conduct of the accused and their lack of hurry and their lack of concern for the passage of time can be used in assessing any prejudice. And this is consistent with the trial judge's finding in the case at bar. He found that the prejudice that the accused were complaining about did not, was not a result of the delay. So in this case, applying the transitional exceptional circumstance, 
there is no violation of the charter and the trial judge did have grounds for dismissing the motion for a stay of proceedings. For these reasons, we would uphold the appeal and refer the matter back to a new, uh, for, for rehearing by the Court of Appeal of Quebec. Thank you. Thank you, Justice Kasserer, and thank you, everyone. Good afternoon. The court is adjourned until Monday morning at 9.30. Goodbye.